I know you can do two things at once, so grab your Bibles as well and turn to John chapter 8. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. So we have been walking through the series called One-on-One with Jesus, looking at the different encounters in the Gospel of John that Jesus had with individuals and what that looks like for our life, knowing that everything that Jesus did, everything that he said, every person that he ever encountered, he did on purpose for not only that person, but for us to learn about who God is. And so we've been walking through this journey, and today we're going to talk about Jesus one-on-one with sinners, which is all of us. I know so some of you, it's a newsflash, you're a sinner. Yes, we all are. But this morning, what we're going to look at is a story that's probably, other than John 3, 16, it's probably the most famous passage in all of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 8. It's a story of, of a woman encountering Jesus at, at the moment of her brokenness, being caught in adultery. And what we're going to do this morning is look at this passage and look at the way there's two primary points of kind of influence and authority in the story. One, the religious leaders, and then the other one, Jesus. Jesus being God. And this gives us an insight into the way that God views and approaches and engages sinners. And as we go through this passage, you and I will be surprised. God responds to sin different than we respond to sin. In fact, we respond to sin a certain way, and then we project that onto God and say, this is how God is. In reality, what Jesus represents in this passage is the way that God responds. But one of the things that, that we have to start with is understand this. One of the things that is not up, deba- up for debate in this passage and what is not up to, for debate in our lives is we are all guilty. I know it's like, oh, this is so encouraging this morning. No, we're all guilty of sin because we're all sinners. Before God, that is not a debate. God already knows that we're guilty. God already knows that we're sinners. But sometimes we have to start with that and come to that, that fact first to understand his grace and his mercy in our life. Anybody ever got a speeding ticket before in your life? Or a, t- a ticket for running a stop sign or anything. Okay, wow, you guys are pretty good drivers. I guess first service, all the crazy drivers are out early in the morning. So stay off the roads, right? So we were on vacation in Scottsdale a few years ago. And about a week or two after we got back, I got a letter in the mail. And it was, the return address was Scottsdale, city of Scottsdale. I'm like, wow, a welcome letter from this wonderful city we were on vacation in. Obviously, it wasn't. It was uh, a ticket. And when I opened it and I started reading it, Right off the back, it said this is, you know, your, your photo was taken on such such a day in this area and this speed. And so here's your citation. It's like two or $300. It's ridiculous. I'm like, this is insane. So as I'm reading this, I'm starting to get angry. Like, and I'm starting to get angry to the point, I'm, think, I'm thinking very self-justifying thoughts. And they were, first of all, I was like, how in the world do they know it was even me? They don't have any proof. And then I got angry enough that I start, my thoughts started coming out. And I'm like, yelled at the other room, Kim's room. I'm like, I said, can you believe this? They said that I was going 55 and a 45. They didn't even know if it was me. And so I hold the paper, the ticket up in the air to discover the ticket has two sides to it. The flip side was four pictures. <laughs> one was the front of my car with my license plate. One was the side of the car. And then there was another on the back that was my back. And then there was one focused right in on the windshield with my face staring at me. So I put it down on the counter. I'm like, all right, that's it. I got to pay it. I'm guilty. And it was kind of like God saying, keep your mouth shut, okay? You're guilty. And I, and I, and anybody, just that frustration. But it's the reality that my guilt was not up for debate. It was verified. And, and you could see it. And that's what's true with us. But the question that we have this morning is not whether we're guilty and innocent. That's determined. But how does God respond to our guilt? How does he respond to our sin? And so that's why we're in this passage this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 11. Actually, the last little part of uh, chapter 7, but in John. So starting here in verse 53 of chapter 7 and then in chapter 8. It says, They went to each uh, to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, uh, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down, and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, as we read these stories, uh, this is just an incredible encounter Jesus has with this woman. And there's such a clear comparison between one understanding of God and then the true understanding of the way God approaches sinners. So I want to start with really looking at the religious leaders. And, and really, I think the way that they viewed God at that time so many times is the way that even today we view God. So starting off with three things about them, starting in verse 3 and 4, the way that we think God responds to sinners was the way they thought God responds to sinners. The first is this. We think that God is interested in catching us in the act. That there's this moment that God comes along and he finally gets us. Like that's his focus. So it says in verses 3 and 4, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in their midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The word caught can actually be translated arrested. So she'd been kind of like taken into custody. She had violated their moral law. And so because of that, she's guilty. And so they've, they've kind of brought her to this place. And there's like, we've got this. We've caught her. There's no way out of this. She's guilty. We caught her in the act. It wasn't hearsay. It wasn't rumor. It wasn't somebody else's testimony. We caught her in the act. Therefore, she's guilty. We got her. And what's interesting is I'm sure they were hoping one way that maybe Jesus would jump on their back and would say, yes, aha, we caught you in your sin. Which, believe it or not, I think sometimes that's exactly how we think God treats us. That somehow God has orchestrated all of creation and all of humanity to live on the earth so that every once in a while God can jump into human history and say, aha, I caught you, you sinner. Now, we don't think that like literally, but we live that way. We think that God somehow is up there hunting us down, watching us, looking over our shoulder, waiting for us to mess up so he can come in and just point the finger. Some of us have that view of God. It's, it's like the show The Hunted that came out. I think it was a CBS show. That was, it's a reality show. They had all these teams that were literally, they were like mock fugitives, and so they'd be sent on the run, and then they had teams of, of investigators and like law enforcement that would actually try to track them. And the whole contest, I think they had to like be on the run for at least 25 days, maybe 30 days, and the prize was $250,000. So it was interesting when you watch the show. You and I think we live relatively anonymous lives. Not at all. We are tracked every moment of the day. It was amazing to watch these people think, okay, we can do this. We can stay off the grid for, for 25 days. We can win the $250,000. But every move that you make is tracked. There's cameras everywhere in our culture now, everywhere. Security cameras, there's traffic cameras, there's cameras everywhere. They call it, you know, closed circuit CCTV. It's everywhere, and so they can track your movement. Every time you use an ATM, it's registered exactly where. Every time you use your cell phone, in fact, even if you don't use your cell phone and your cell phone's on, you're trackable. 
everything that you do. The GPS on your car is tracking you. Someone can access that. And so when we're watching this show, you think everyone's like, like you're watching. Of course, you have the perspective of watching and seeing everything going on. The people in the show don't realize it, but you're like, no, 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 don't go to that ATM. No, don't go to that bus station. Why? Because the moment they walk in, like, boom, it's over. They got them. And only two of the teams actually made it through the whole time and actually got the $250,000. Because they would, they would be going for it, and then suddenly, boom, they would catch them. And I think sometimes that's our view of God, that God is he's interested in catching us in the act. And that's why I think so many times when we, when we live in sin, we try to hide it, which, by the way, newsflash, you can't hide your sin from God, although you think you can, because we're afraid, oh, he's going to catch us. But if I'm really smart, he'll never know. And he does. You can fool people, but you can't fool God. Second thing, second way that we think God approaches sinners or our sin is that we are condemned forever. It says in verse 5, it says, Now in the law of Moses, or the law of Moses condemned or commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? So this is, this is interesting. They're, they're, what, what are they doing? They're, they're condemning her to death. They're saying the law says she has to die. And so what do you say? Of course, they're trying to, to trick Jesus. Now, here's, here's the reality for Jesus. Her guilt is not in question. Jesus already knows she's guilty. Jesus already knows religious leaders are guilty. Jesus already knows everybody around him is guilty. This is not a newsflash of Jesus. But to them, we're like, oh, she's going to be condemned. Why? Because the law says that someone who participates in adultery obviously has to die. But that wasn't the issue for Jesus. But they're trying to condemn her forever. How many of us really think that that's the way God works with us? We think God's default is condemnation. You and I live under this weight that God is constantly mad at us or condemning us or judging us for our sin, and that that somehow is the focus of his existence, when in reality it's actually quite the opposite. In fact, some of us, and I know I, I deal with this a lot, but some of us li are living under the condemnation of an event that happened in our lives years ago, and we have maybe even come before the Lord and we've confessed it, but we still live under this weight because we feel like somehow forever this is a part of who I am, this defines who I am, and therefore I constantly feel the crushing weight of it in my life. I might be free from it for a little while, but then I run into a situation or I run into a person and it brings me right back to that moment where I feel that weight again of the brokenness in my life and I feel a sense of condemnation. So in your mind, you're resolved to the reality that you feel condemned forever and you think that's coming from God. And it's not. It's something that you've allowed to be a part of the way you think God deals with you, but it's not in reality of who he is. One of the, the many times that I... Uh, used golf clubs in the improper way and paid the price for it was a Christmas morning when my uncle decided to give me a new set of uh, golf clubs. He was teaching me how to golf, and so I was using some of his clubs, so he gave me a set, and so no time like the present, you know, when you're young and stupid, let's go play golf out in the street with real golf clubs and real, go real golf balls, and so I called my friend down from down the street. I said, check out what my uncle gave me. He's like, he was excited, so we go out in the middle of our street and I set the ball down, and I pull out, I think it was like a five iron. I'm like, I'm just going to tag this five iron. So where I grew up, I think I've explained this before, at the end of the street, over a fence at the end of our street was a, like a home improvement store. It was Christmas morning. They're closed. There's nobody in the parking lot. I'm thinking, I can get a hold of this golf ball. I can clear the fence, and no one will know. It'll just be bouncing forever in the parking lot. So I take the hardest swing I can, and I nail it. I'm just hammered it. The problem is, it was flying at like 100 miles an hour, three inches above the ground. And as it flew, it hit the curb before the fence that went into the home improvement store and kicked back towards us. 
And as it kicked back towards us, my friend and I were watching it, and as I'm watching it, I'm seeing the trajectory, and I know what's about to happen, and sure enough, it comes flying through the window of our next-door neighbor right in the middle of their entire family gathered in the living room, opening Christmas presents. <laughs> so I'm standing in the middle of the street with a golf club in my hand, and there's a golf ball in his living room, and I turn to find my good old faithful friend, and no joke, he's 200 yards down the street, almost in his front door. And so then I'm thinking, I got to go. So I start running for my front door. I get to my driveway, and my neighbor comes out with a golf ball in his hand, screaming obscenities at the top of his lungs. He wasn't saying Merry Christmas at all. He was so angry. And then his wife, and then, like, the whole family is coming out on the front yard, screaming at me. And so my dad comes out, and he figures out what's going on. And everybody calms down, calms down. And, of course, it was not a very good Christmas for me. In fact, I, I got punished. My, my, my punishment for my family, remember, I grew up in a family with three older sisters. There was a lot of dishes in our household always, so for two months straight, I had to do the dishes. And I had to, like, every time I did it, my dad would pay me a quarter, which then I paid him back because he had to replace the window. It was horrible. But you know there's something worse than having to pay for a broken window and doing dishes for two months? Was what happened to me for the rest of the time that I lived in that house every single time I encountered my neighbors. I, every time I came outside and I was playing and I saw them drive by or I saw them come out front or I encountered them immediately right back to that moment again, I could feel the emotion again, I could feel the guilt again, I could feel the shame again, and I had broken their window and I had destroyed their Christmas. Now, it wasn't anything necessarily that they said specific to me, but it was I felt this constantly. And I think sometimes we live in that tension with God all the time. You'll come to church, but you really don't want to encounter God because your idea of God is that God's just going to crush you with condemnation and you're condemned forever and you have no hope. That's not the way God functions, but sometimes that's the way we think he functions. Then there's a third reality of the way we think God responds to sinners, and that is that we are conspired against. In verse 6, it says, This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. So here's the reality of what's going on. The woman is brought forward, with, it caught in the act of adultery. The law is very clear. She deserves death. And in that day and age, because it was a very male-dominated society, the man was guilty too, but most of the most time, what happened when the couple was caught in adultery, the woman would be put to death, and the man would be reprimanded by the religious leaders. Not very fair. But here's, interest, here's what's interesting. The man is nowhere to be found. Why is he not there? I'll tell you why he's not there. This whole thing is orchestrated. This whole thing is intended to trick Jesus. It is, it is, they are playing games with this woman's life. Can you imagine? Just think about this for a moment. They knew this woman was loose, most likely, so they waited until she was in the act of adultery. They grab her, and they know that she's worthy of death, so they bring her before Jesus. They are playing games. They could care less if she lives or dies. They're just going after Jesus. So they're playing God in her life, and they're playing games with her life. Her life is in the balance. All they're wanting to do is win an argument and popularity contest with Jesus. They care nothing about her. But how many times does our understanding come that somehow, because we struggle with addiction, or we live in sin, or we're struggling in areas of our life, that we think that God in just a moment could snap his fingers and all of my problems could go away, and life could be good, but he doesn't do that. Why? Because somehow we think that God's playing with us. That God's messing with our lives. That somehow he's brought us into existence just to be a pawn in his game so he can do what he wants, but he really doesn't care either way what happens to us. People think that way. Many of us in this room, we think that way. I'm going to play you a short clip from Bruce Almighty. Great clip from that movie, which is, by the way, that movie's a mixed bag. And by the way, this, this, this section that you're going to play, it's interesting because you want to laugh or you want to cry because some of you laugh because it's humorous and some of you want to cry because you feel like the same words came out of your mouth towards God. See if you, you can resonate with this short clip from Bruce Almighty. 
Well, thank God you're all right. God, yeah, let's thank God, shall we? For his blessings are raining down upon me. Wait, that's not rain! Bruce, please don't do that, honey. You know that everything happens for a reason. That I don't need. That is a cliche. That is not helpful to me. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I have no bird. I have no bush. God has taken my bird in my bush. Oh, I see. So, so God is picking on you? Is that what you're saying? No, he's ignoring me completely. He's far too busy giving Evan everything he wants. Oh, that's great, Sam. But you missed your target. I'm over here! Don't get mad at the dog. Not the dog's fault. No, it's God's fault. I gave him the wrong coordinates. All right, you know what? Enough. All right, will you just stop being such a martyr? I am not being a martyr. I'm a victim. God is a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass, and I'm the ant. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, but he'd rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. All right, sweetheart, I know that you're mad. It's completely understandable what Evan did is slimy and wrong. But this day could have been so much worse. I'm just glad you're okay. Okay? Newsflash! I'm not okay. I'm not okay with a mediocre job. I'm not okay with a mediocre apartment. I'm not okay with a mediocre life! You don't have to raise your hand, but I think we all can resonate with that. At one point or another in our lives, we feel like, though, as though God is not really serious in terms of his care for us, but he's playing with us. And that's the way the religious leaders function. And that's sometimes our interpretation of God. God is never playing around with our sin. He actually takes our sin seriously, more seriously than we do because he's the one that gave his son to die on the cross for us. So if that's kind of our mentality of the way that God approaches a sinner, what's the reality of what he really does when we sin in our life? So go ahead and move forward in the passage. Look at verse 6. How does God actually respond to our sin? The first thing is in verse 6 he tells us is that he ignores the accusations of others. This is huge. Jesus, it says Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. For so many, so many years, I know that when I've studied this, this particular scripture and heard people talk about it, so many people speculate on what Jesus was writing. And if you look at the passage, you realize that what Jesus was writing is completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter what he's writing. It's the fact that he is writing. Because what he's doing is these guys have brought this woman caught in the act of adultery, and they're telling Jesus what she's done wrong. And what is his response? <gasps> I had no idea. You surprised me. You caught me off guard. I had no idea this woman would be guilty of adultery. I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek. Jesus didn't respond that way. What did he do? He bent down and started writing in the sand or writing on the ground. Why? Because he's completely ignoring them. He's not concerned with the accusation. Why? Jesus already knows that their guilt and her guilt is already determined. They're guilty. So he doesn't, this is not a newsflash to him. So what is he doing? He's ignoring their accusation. Why is that significant? Because God ignores the accusations of other people about your life. Some of you need to hear that. It doesn't matter if somebody comes before God and says, so-and-so is doing this horrible thing. Guess what? He already knows. And some of us are living under the judgment of other people, and we think it's the judgment of God, and it's not. It's the judgment of other people. That God is ignoring the accusation because he already knows. But sometimes we get stuck in that. And so what do we do? We live under the condemnation of the judgment of other people who are actually sinning in their judgment of us. But we live under that. Why? Thinking that's the way God treats me. No. God already knows that you're broken. God already knows that you're a sinner. God already knows that you're guilty. He doesn't need somebody to come along and tell him. But boy, we, we put a lot of credence in that when somebody else points the finger at us. Because 
if they're coming from a heart of compassion and grace and mercy that wants to see redemption in your life, then that's the voice of God. But if they're coming at you with judgment and superiority and self-righteousness, that's the voice of the enemy. And you guys will buy, will buy into that. And when we do that, we miss what God's trying to accomplish. In his book, one of, probably one of the great shortest books you can ever read called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, I've quoted from before, Tim Keller says this. He says, it doesn't matter what you think of me, it doesn't matter what I think of me, it only matters what God thinks of me, and he already has made that clear, I'm justified through the cross. Do you hear that? It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of you. In fact, it doesn't even matter what you think of yourself. Oh, you need to think great thoughts about yourself, you need to be calm. No, it doesn't matter what you think of yourself. You know why? Because you'll lie to yourself on either extreme. You'll downplay your sin on one side or you'll play it up on the other side. And either way, it doesn't matter because before God through the cross, you're justified. That's important for us. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. He says, and such were some of you, were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Isn't that amazing news? So it doesn't matter if somebody comes along and finds all the sin in my life and says, see, I told you, and they code it before God. God says it doesn't matter. Just like, you know, the enemy goes before, the Bible talks about, he's the, what, accuser of us. And what does God go? Oh, I can't believe that you came with this new evidence about this person's life. No, he already knows. But that doesn't change the way that we live or we even let other people live. And, and one of the things we've got to be careful of in the church I'm telling you, I've been in the church for a long time, and I've found, not all the time, but many times, we as Christians are more judgmental than the world that we live in. And sometimes the accusation that the world levels against the church is actually true, that we are very judgmental, as though God needs help in that area. I don't think he does. He doesn't need our help. But boy, we'll offer it. A really close friend of mine had a moral failure a number of years ago. He was a pastor at the time. And so when he went through that, we sat down and he was going through kind of the deepest moments of his life. We were having lunch about once a month and sitting down and you just tell me what he was walking through. And the thing that shocked me the most, I did not want to believe it. He said, he was telling me story after story where, where he had been a very successful leader in our, in our denomination and he had a lot of relationships and he would show up to events where everybody used to be his friend and everybody used to love him and then he'd walk in the door and the room would go silent. And nobody would talk to him, no one would say anything to him. In fact, the only conversation he would hear was whispers in the corner and people looking at him with judgment in their eyes. And then he would tell me things that I couldn't believe that, that broke my heart. And he told me, he said, what, what surprised me through this whole process, he said, there are people that I'm close to that don't know Jesus and they've never judged me. He said, in fact, there's a group of people who don't know Jesus that I've been friends with for a long time. And he said, where the people who are the church are supposed to find forgiveness and compassion have not responded at all. And he said, this is what's crazy because when you're a pastor and you have a moral failure, you know what? You don't just lose, could lose your marriage and your family. You lose your job. You lose everything. And he had lost everything. And so the only group of people that were not necessarily, the denomination helped him, but were people who knew him, that loved him enough to care for he and his family were people outside the church. People who didn't even know Jesus had compassion enough to say, let's pull our money together and support this family so that they, they can actually eat. And he said, I never got that from people who were my closest friends within the church. And I thought, what a tragedy. Why? Because we always take the accusation and, and we point the finger at other people and we think somehow we're justified. And what we've done is we've allowed someone to live under 
condemnation. I know, my friend, he was broken over his sin. He was repentant for his sin. He didn't need judgment. What he needed was grace and compassion, which is exactly what Jesus gave him and exactly what we should give to each other. But for some of us today, you need to hear something. You are living under the condemnation of somebody else's judgment on your life, not God's. God already knows you're guilty. He doesn't come and point the finger at you. We point the finger And what God wants us to understand is that's not the way he functions. The second thing, look at verse 7. God actually responds to our sin when he actually sees sin as sin. Verse 7, it says, And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, This is the, he levels the playing field. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He did not say that those among you who are guilty of adultery can be the first, or those who are innocent of adultery. He doesn't even mention the sin. You know why? Because to God, sin is sin. The sin of their judgment and their dishonesty to God is just as severe as her sin of adultery. Why is that significant? Because you and I have a pecking order when it comes to sin. We do. We treat sin differently. Now listen, the reality of sin in our lives and its impact is different. There are some sins that are more harmful to people around us and to ourselves, but before God, sin is sin. And we have to understand that. Why? Because we create like, okay, this sin's way up here, and this one, that's not so bad. No, they're all the same thing to God. They're all less than what God purposed for. They're all what places Jesus on the cross on our behalf. So we don't don't have the right or the privilege to say, okay, this is where this one ranks, and this is, because God doesn't do that. Here's the reality for all of us. Apart from Jesus and his death and resurrection, we are all on death row and we're all condemned. That's the truth. But the good news is because of the cross, we don't have to remain that way. Some of us have to understand that because again, we're arguing this and we're, we're looking at sins in our own lives and we're comparing ourselves to other people and, and, we ha- and it, God says, no, 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 you're all sinners. This is how ridiculous it gets. If you were to go to San Quentin today and you were to to interview all the people on death row who obviously may or may not see that depending on what California always does with its laws, but who cares? They're on death row. They're not getting out. You know what you will never find on death row? You never find two inmates getting into a fight over who's more guilty. Who's more condemned? You don't see that. They may get into fights on all other things, but they don't fight over that. Why? Because they know they're all in the same boat. Apart from Jesus, you and I are all just sitting on death row. It is silly for you and I to turn and argue with the person next to us how more sinful they are than you are. Isn't it amazing that inmates condemned to death don't fight, but Christians do? Something wrong with that? It's our view of God. God doesn't treat us that way. God sees our sin as sin, and so he doesn't look at one person worse than the other. He looks at us all broken. You know what he looks at? He looks at us, and he has compassion. How many times in the Gospels did Jesus come on a crowd that is helpless and harassed, and it says he was moved with what? Judgment and wrath? No, he was moved with what? Compassion. His heart broke. I want you to think about that. I don't think in eternity when when the ultimate judgment comes, and, and, and Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, and eventually you reach the place where death and Hades and Satan are thrown into the lake of fire, and all those who have rejected Jesus. I don't think that Jesus is going to sit there with a smug look on his face, so glad to cast the wicked people into eternal damnation. I don't think that's what he's going to do. I think his heart is going to break for people that could have had a different reality for eternity. 
and his heart will be breaking because nowhere does he ever want to send. That's what he said. The Bible says he's not willing that any would perish. That's why he's waiting. That's why Jesus hasn't come back because his heart breaks for the world and his heart breaks for you in your sin and that's the way he approaches us. And there's a third thing. God, his response to our sin is that he does not condemn us. Now, this is where people are like, now, wait a second. You're saying God doesn't condemn sin apart from the sacrifice of Jesus? Absolutely. But he doesn't condemn us because of Jesus. So look at verse 10 and 11. It says, and Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now, capture this for just a moment. They couldn't condemn her. Why? Because they were guilty, just like her. They had no right to condemn her. Who's the one person in the story who has the right to condemn her? Jesus. He's perfect. He doesn't have any sin. He's, he can stand in judgment over her. Why? Because he's not guilty of the same sin. He's not guilty of any sin. But what does he say? Neither do I condemn you. Some of us need to hear those words today because you are self-condemning. And here's the truth about the way God works. God will condemn people who choose to be condemned. We always think, oh man, they're going to like, oh, if I would have known, I would have changed my, my plea, I would have changed my idea, I would have changed my life. No, you know that what we end up doing is we end up condemning ourselves, and then God lets that, uh, that, that kind of unfold in eternity for us. Listen to what the Bible says in John 3, verse 18. This is a few verses after the famous verse, 16. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Who's doing the condemning? We are. We are. And we don't have to live in that because the goal that Jesus came with is not condemnation. The goal that Jesus came with is salvation. His goal is not to condemn. His goal is to save Let's go a few verses earlier. This is John 3, 16 and 17. Remind you, you've probably heard this a million times. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to what? To condemn the world. No, but what? In order that the world might be saved through him. That's why he came. Going on, listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We don't have to be condemned because what Jesus has done on the cross. And just, just think about the way that, what that means for us. It means for us, it means for the world. If you have a terminal disease and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, listen, I know exactly what you need. There is a cure that is 100% works every single time it's used. Here it is. Here's the treatment plan. Here's the, here's the medicine you need to take. If you do this, you'll be cured of your terminal illness and you'll be free to live your life. How would you respond? Yeah. Give it to me now, doc. I want it. I want it. You wouldn't walk away and say, eh, I'll check out different options and I'll do something else. But if you did, and then you end up on your deathbed, would you go back and say, you know, the doctor killed me. That doctor was killing me. No, 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 no. You wouldn't say that. Why? Because the doctor was trying to bring you life. But you did what? You self-condemned by rejecting the only cure for your disease. 
It's the same thing that way Jesus offers his life for ours, his death in our place, rises from the dead, he has power over sin and death, and he says, listen, if you follow me and you let my grace and my mercy cover your life, you have the antidote for your sin that will give you life, quality of life here, and life forever. And if we say no, who's doing the condemning? We are. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody to perish. That's why anytime someone says about God that God is unfair because he's going to send people to hell, no, he's unfair to himself because he's done everything to avoid that reality for everybody. But do we accept the cure that he offers to you and I? And then finally, there's this. The last part of verse 11, God actually responds to our sin this way. He sets us free. The last part of verse 11 says, he says, go and from now on, Sin no more. Now, when you read that, there's, if you have a judgmental mind, you read that a certain way. And people will read this passage and they'll go, see? See, Jesus was being compassionate. Jesus was being gracious. Jesus was being forgiven. But man, he was going to hold her accountable for her sin. And that becomes the focus of the passage, missing the point. Jesus will always hold us accountable for our sin. But remember, what does he want to do? Not condemn. He wants to what? Save. So what is he saying to her? He's saying, listen, they're not here to condemn you. I'm not going to condemn you. And because you're not condemned, you're free to go live a life that doesn't include the sins of your past. He's not saying you better not sin because if you sin, it's all coming back on you, sister. I'm pulling back my non-condemnation. It's come. He's not saying that, but you know what? That's the way we read it. Why? Because we have an, we have an ideal of judgment. God, hold people accountable. You guess what? You don't have to hold people accountable. God will take care of that. Unless they're in a place of leadership and they subject themselves to that level of accountability, let Jesus be Jesus. He wants to set people free. Let him do it. He doesn't need your help to point the finger in their face. But boy, do we do that. So if someone's pointing the finger in your face, pray for them. Pray that God would show them their sin. And they would have brokenness and compassion in their life because obviously you do if they're pointing the finger at you. Why is this so significant? Because when you are condemned, you can't live a different life. You can only live differently when you're free. See, this is the opposite of the way that we look at punishment. This is the opposite of the way we look at motivation. Now, I'm not making a critique on any of the way that we raise our kids, because I know I, ra I was raised this way, but we always use what? Crime and punishment. You're guilty, therefore, you get what? You get spanked, you get a timeout, you're, you get grounded, whatever it is, right? And that's the way we motivate our kids. Do you see, did you see that in this passage at all? I'm not saying that's not something we should do, because there is an accountability that children need to learn, but here's what happens. When you're guilty, you can't live out from underneath that guilt can't it's going to stay with you and there's something that motivates more than guilt and shame and punishment it's forgiveness it changes everything it gives you a new lease on life and it gives you the ability to now go what live a life that's different than what you lived before think about this in your own life here i'll, I'll share another story because i have been pulled over many times in my life but i haven't always gotten a ticket every time i'm pulled over and it's not because I have connections and the right friends or the right things to say or I'm a pastor. By the way, pastors don't get off, okay? They don't get off tickets. So one of the times when we were up in, in Oregon and Newburgh, and it just so happened, I got pulled over a couple times in Newburgh, never got a ticket, but Jordan was always in the car. And Jordan's probably grown up like, man, I should drive with mom more because dad's a bad driver, right? 
always on the way to school when we're in a hurry, you know. And so Courtney and Jordan were going to different schools. I dropped Courtney off because she started a little bit sooner. So I'm driving Jordan to school. And sure enough, <coughs> I hear a siren. And I see right in my rearview mirror, there's a, there's a Newburgh PD um, motorcycle officer. And so I pull over. And on and being honest, I had no idea what I did. I had really I had no idea. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to play dumb. I just didn't know. So he comes up to the window and he goes, hey, he goes, how, how fast do you think you're going back there? And I said, I don't know, like 35? He goes, yeah, that's about what I had you at too. I'm like, I'm thinking it was 35. And he goes, did you know that the speed limit is 25 miles an hour back there? I'm like, oh, no, I didn't. He goes, yeah, it's posted. I said, honestly? I said, I didn't know. I said, but yeah, I was doing 35 definitely. He goes, okay. He goes, let me have your, you know, your license registration and, and your proof of insurance. I'm like, hand it over. I'm like, ah. And Jordan's in the backseat, Dad, we're going to be late for school. <laughs> I'm like, I know, Jordan, I'm a little busy right now. And so he comes back to the car, and I'm just ready, you know, because he's going to hand me, can you sign this? And so he comes into the car, and he hands me back my, ri my driver's license and my registration and birth insurance. He goes, I'm going to let you go on this one. I'm like, really? I'm thinking, is there a camera? Does he know me? Did he come to the church one time? I'm like, I'm going through this, and he goes, listen, he goes, I'm going to let you go this time. He goes, but, but just slow down a little bit, especially when you're driving to that area. Just remember, it's 25 miles an hour. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. His name wasn't Jesus. I was thanking Jesus, okay? So then I drove off, and I'll tell you, no joke, every single time I rode down that street ever again, I was close to 25 miles an hour. I tried to stay, why? And it wasn't because, oh, no, where's the officer? It was because every single time I drove down there, I remembered I got, I got set free from what I was guilty of. And that changed me. If I would, honestly, if I would have gotten a ticket, I would have been bitter every time I drove down that street because I was guilty and then I was penalized for my guilt. But here's the greater reality of what Jesus has done. Jesus doesn't give us just a free pass. Somebody has to pay. Jesus took our debt. He took our punishment on himself. So think about that. The reason you and I get to go free is because somebody was condemned. Jesus was condemned on our behalf. That's why, this is what's so amazing. That's why Jesus, in this moment, this is just a little while before he knows he's gonna go to the cross, he can say to her, neither do I condemn you. Why? Because in Jesus' mind, you know what's going on? Because he knows, I'm gonna be condemned for your sin. This act of adultery is the very thing I'm gonna take and nail to the cross, not, not in a few weeks from now. And she doesn't know that, but he does. And so when he said, go now live free from sin, and I'm not condemning you. He wasn't saying that like, hey, you got a free pass. He was saying with deep conviction, you can go free and you're not condemned because he knew what he was about to do. He knew he was going to die for her. That's the way that God treats our sin. And some of us have been living in religion and judgment and guilt and shame and condemnation for far too long. And the last thing that would describe our faith is freedom. Freedom. Because we're so restricted by the way we think God treats us. And we haven't taken the time to ask him how he responds to our sin. He's not giving license for us to go and just do whatever, because that's what we're always afraid of. Oh, you're giving license to sin. No, he's not giving license to sin. He's give, giving freedom from sin. You don't have to live under that anymore. And all of us need that. And we need our minds renewed and we need our minds changed. In fact, I'm going to ask the worship team to come and, and join me. We're going we're gonna, to conclude our service by sharing in communion together and we're going to go into one last song but I, I want us to respond to something as we go into communion that's really really important for us this morning as, as we conclude is that for some of us today 
even, even the words that I shared, and maybe even you've heard that passage before, but you're struggling so much in this area, you can't believe that what I just said is true. In fact, in your mind, you're either arguing against what Pastor John said, or you're just writing it off because you're like, no, 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 I, I know who God is, and that's really good, and grace and mercy and wonderful, that's written forgiveness, but I know ultimately I, I, I'm still condemned. You don't say the words, but you still feel that. The greatest tragedy of this day was for you to walk out, for you to walk out the door with that weight of condemnation still on your shoulders that you have placed on yourself or you've let others place on you. But Jesus certainly has not placed it on you. Why? Because of what we're about to do. Because of what we're about to remember. Jesus can extend no condemnation and freedom from sin for all humanity, for all time, because of his death and his resurrection. Do you really believe that? You can be forgiven. You can have the cloud lifted off of your life. You can go live a life differently than what you lived prior to. We don't know this woman's story, but I'll guarantee you, she had the best shot ever of not committing adultery again because Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. See, you're not guilty anymore because of what Jesus did, so stop living guilty. Live free. Live in his grace, live in his mercy. I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes. Because what I want you to picture, and I know we can't put ourselves there, but we can feel maybe what she felt. But I want you just to think for a moment. This woman who was caught in adultery, she knew the law. There was probably no question because of the culture she lived in. She was well aware of the penalty for adultery. So when she's caught in the act and she's brought into the public place with with Jesus there and her accusers and she's standing there and if she's caught in the act of adultery, maybe she was able to grab something to cover her nakedness and she's standing there being victimized by a man and now being victimized by a group of men standing before Jesus. But knowing the law, she knew the law because of the culture she was raised in. And she knew that she was guilty and because of that she knew she deserved death and she had probably seen times before where someone had been caught in this act and the result was death so I'm pretty sure and this is a very educated guess she knew and believed she was about to die it was just a matter of how long it was going to take for that to happen so she's standing there before Jesus convinced that she's condemned to die So in her mind, she's already resolved herself to death. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Listen to those words. What does that mean to somebody who believes they're about to die? It changes everything. Because in that moment, you move from death to life. You move from being condemned to being set free. And that's one of the reasons Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to what? Die in order to live. You are condemned apart from Jesus. But with Jesus, you are forgiven and resurrected to new 
life. Today, Jesus calls us, and what we're about to do in taking communion, these elements, the bread and the cup, which are symbols that point to Jesus' death on the cross for us, that paid for our sin, and we take these monthly to remind ourselves of the reality of what Jesus has done. But I need you to understand what Jesus says to us today is what he said to this woman thousands of years ago. When you take those elements today, I want you to hear Jesus saying to you as you hold those elements over your brokenness and your sin and your condemnation and your guilt that Jesus whispers in your spirit today neither do I condemn you because of the cross now you can go and leave the life you used to live and now truly begin to live I don't know what your sin is I don't know if it's adultery or if it's dishonesty or if it's financial integrity or if it's gossip or if whatever it is but God knows and he knows that you're condemned but he said there's a way for you to be free and it's called the cross so I'm going to ask you when you take those elements that you would just let God whisper into your soul today that through the cross you are forgiven. Through the cross you are brought to life. And no longer do the accusations of the enemy or anyone else around you have anything to do with the way you relate to God because you stand justified before him because of his blood that was shed for you. Jesus, in these moments, would you come now by your spirit's presence in us and would you release us from the weight of the condemnation that we've carried lord the judgment that we've lived under would you set us free as you set her free so that we might be able to live differently because we live in your grace we live in your forgiveness we live in your life jesus we thank you in your name